I would ask you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles this morning as we look to God's Word once again, uh, this time uh, to the book of Acts, sometimes referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, uh, it is the Acts of the Spirit of God in the midst of His children. It's an account of these things, and uh, there's much in the book of Acts for us to profit from and benefit from, as, of course, there is in all of God's Word, and God is pleased uh, to speak His Word to our hearts. But I want us to look this morning here in the uh, 13th chapter of the book of Acts. I was going to begin with verse 38, but I would like to back up, I think, a little further than that, or perhaps even to verse 26 of the 13th chapter of Acts, and uh, we'll begin reading there, and we'll concentrate, God willing, a little bit later on a couple of verses, uh, a little further along in the chapter. Uh, this morning, uh, I want to speak, if I could, uh, on the subject of indispensable mercy. Indispensable mercy. Now, that word indispensable, most of you are well aware, uh, simply just means to us it's just something we can't do without. Got to have it. Got to have it. And so mercy, the mercy of God, is something that is indispensable. Something we just can't not have. Must have it. Must have the mercy of God. Indispensable mercy. If you would look with me, beginning with verse 26 of Acts chapter 13, where the Apostle Paul uh, is uh, writing here or speaking here as it's recorded what he spoke. Uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, uh, are together at Antioch in Pisidia, and uh, some things are taking place here that uh, we need to be aware of. And Paul is speaking here, and he says, Brothers... Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Let me just pause there in the reading of God's word for just a moment before we go on. You know, I, I, you know, I don't know how many times I have read a portion of Scripture that points out what we just read there about the Jews and how they uh, had heard so many times uh, every Sabbath, you know, as they sat and uh, listened to the Word of God, the prophets being read to them. Uh, the prophets doing what? Well, among other things, and primarily even f speaking forth prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, the one God had promised uh, to be the deliverer of His people. They knew this, they had heard this, they had read this, and they had listened to it time and time again. And yet, because they did not understand what was being said, what was being uttered or prophesied by the prophets, uh, they went on to fulfill what was prophesied concerning them that they would hate him, that they would turn him over to the authorities to be executed, to be crucified, to die on a cruel cross. They want him dead. You read through the Gospels time and time again, and you see them wanting to take up stones to stone him or finding some way uh, to have him put to death. And numerous have been the times in my own heart and life when I when I have thought, 
Why would they do such a thing? Why would they be the reason, having heard and having realized all that had been spoken to them through the many, many years, why would they want him put to death? Why would he die because of what they wanted to do? And then so many times God has reminded me that Jesus did not die because of them. He died because of me. Because of me. And because of you, if you're a believer, if you're a child of God, if you're one of those that God set His love upon before the foundation of the world, you, you are the reason that He died. Your sin is the cause. And my sin is the cause of Christ, the Messiah, the Promised One, the Savior. We are the cause. For He took our sin upon Himself, didn't He? He paid the price. I love that hymn, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Me, the sinner. I'm the reason He died. I'm the reason He died. My sin nailed Him to the cross. Oh, but verse 30. But verse 30. But God. But God raised Him from the dead. Raised Him from the dead. Death couldn't hold Him. Death couldn't hold Him. Because He's the Son of God. It says, but God raised Him from the dead. And praise God. Because He was raised from the dead. He lives, doesn't He? And He, I live because He lives. He rose from the grave and gave me life. Gave me life by the power of His Spirit working in my heart. Something that would not have happened had He not raised from the grave. Well, next Sunday is Easter Sunday, isn't it? A Sunday that has been set aside for uh, the remembrance uh, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, His being raised from the tomb and from the dead. Grieves my heart. Grieves my heart to see what the world has done with the day that was supposedly set aside uh, to remember the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And sadder still, is that how many in the professing church have bought into what the world has done with the remembrance of the resurrection of Christ? What are Easter bunnies and Easter eggs have to do with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Easter for many, if not most, is just another occasion to party. Another occasion to have a good time not even remembering or caring that Christ died and God raised Him from the dead to save poor lost sinners like us. God raised Him from the dead. And for many days He appeared to those who had come up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now His witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, the gospel, that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. 
Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after that he had served the purpose of God, his own generation fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up (coughs) did not see corruption. Now listen. Listen to these next verses. Let it be known. Therefore to you brothers. Let it be known to you therefore brothers. That through this man. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him. Everyone who believes is freed. Or more literally justified. Everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said to the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, or said in the prophets, should come about. Look, you scoffers, or you despisers, be astounded and perish for I'm doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you and isn't that exactly what happened God did a work and they refused to believe it even though they were told even though they were told well we need to bow before the Lord this morning And ask God to please mercifully speak to our hearts. Would you join me in prayer? Our dear Father, once again we bow before you just to acknowledge that we need you, Lord. We need to hear your voice. And oh God, we are so thankful for what we just read. For what is made known unto us. For Lord, what we read here and what you have revealed to us in these, uh, the words of Scripture, uh, this is our hope. This is our hope, Lord, that there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness through this man. Oh, Lord, help us to see this morning. Help us to rejoice in it. And Lord, we pray that it would so move our hearts that we might be more faithfully committed to living for you, to serving you, to honoring you, to glorifying your name. Thank you, Lord. Speak to our hearts now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Indispensable mercy. I think I can safely say that beyond even even the least shadow of doubt, we are all, all of us, we are all uh, guilty of sin. And all of us are in need of forgiveness. Every day. Is there a day that goes by in your life that you are not aware of the fact that you still fall short of what God would have you be? That's sin. That's sin. We are sinners in need of forgiveness. How do I know that? Well, God said so, didn't He? Most of us are well aware of that very familiar verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where the Apostle Paul is is teaching the Romans through the letter that he wrote to them. Remember what he said? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All. All have sinned. And a little bit later, in the fifth chapter, in verse 12, he says, Wherefore, by one man has sin entered into the world and death by sin uh, so that death is passed upon all of us. Because why? 
because we have all sinned. We have all sinned. And we all do sin, don't we? Uh, thank God that uh, when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, don't we? And John talks about that in 1 John, uh, the first chapter of 1 John. He says uh, in verse, well, let's just turn there and look at it. 1 John chapter 1. In verse 8, John says this. He says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's pretty plain, isn't it? John, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God moving in his heart, putting in his very heart the very words that we have here, that if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Look at the 10th verse. For he says there, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Because the scripture, God said in his word, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Oh, but did you notice the verse right between those two? Verse 9. If we confess our sins. To confess your sin is to acknowledge that what God says about you is right. That you're a sinner. God says we are. To confess that is to say the same thing to God about what He says to us. If we do that, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How thankful we must be for that. Earlier, two or three days ago actually, I was thinking about this and the thought came to my mind that no one, no one has ever passed through Heaven's gate, or into God's eternal and holy kingdom, unforgiven of their sin. Ever thought about that? No one, no one, absolutely no one has ever entered heaven into the eternal presence of a holy God, unforgiven of all their sin. God is holy. Sin is not allowed in the presence of holy God. God hates it. God is so holy that the, the prophet tells us he cannot look upon sin. He refuses to. It's so offensive to him that he will not look upon it. No one has ever entered heaven unforgiven of all their sin. Numerous places in the Scripture point this out to us, make this clear to us. Let's look at just a couple of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians the 6th chapter. Verses 9 and 10. First Corinthians 6, verse 9. Here the Apostle says, And do you not know that the unrighteous... Who are the unrighteous? Righteousness is right things in the eyes of God. Righteousness, doing righteousness, is doing the things that God sees as right, has declared as right in His eyes. Unrighteousness, then, is what? It's doing things that are not right in the eyes of God. Not living righteously, uprightly, in accordance with what God reveals we are to be and do. And Paul here says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Not inherit the kingdom of God. Never enter. Never enter in. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None who are unrighteous and unforgiven of their unrighteousness, none will enter in. Paul talks about this again in the fifth chapter of his letter to the church of Galatia. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and following. He says, now the works of the flesh, uh, the things that come out of our old sinful nature are the works of the flesh. He says they are evident. Here it is again, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. To come into God's holy presence, the sinner has to have a passport. Has to have a passport along with a pardon signed with the blood of God's only begotten Son. You have to have it. Have to have that pardon signed by the blood of Christ. In the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter and the twenty-second verse, there the apostle says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no covering of sin. There is no hiding of sin. There is no cleansing of sin. There is no taking away of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. Now, Peter tells us in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed or redeemed, from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but, but with the precious blood of Christ, like of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now what I said just a moment ago was that a sinner to enter into God's holy presence has got to have a pardon. Signed by the blood of Christ. That's what the Scriptures tell us here. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And we are redeemed, uh, purchased, ransomed uh, out of our sinful state and, and freed from the guilt that our sin brings upon us, not by anything perishable like silver and gold, all the silver and all the gold in the world could never redeem a sinner from their sin. It took something much greater than that, didn't it? Peter tells us what it is right here. The blood of Christ. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus in the first chapter of Ephesians, and in verse 7, he's in the midst of praising God for His glorious grace uh, with, which he's, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved or in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 7 of Ephesians 1, He says, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Through His blood. Through His blood. We go all the way back to the very last book in the Bible, the very first chapter of the book of Revelation. Look at this with me. Revelation chapter 1. How does it begin? Well, Justin has been speaking to us from these first few chapters of, 
revelation here and the first message that he brought really pointed out to us what this book is all about. The book of Revelation. Uh, misunderstood by many, many in the world today as to what the purpose of this book is. But it's stated right here at the beginning, isn't it? The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is about. Revealing to us Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Promised One, the Messiah, the Christ, the one God sent into this world to save His people from their sin. This book right here, the last book in the Bible, that's exactly what it is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The last part of verse 4. says, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Who is He talking about here? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That's who this book is about. And from Jesus Christ, here in verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to Him who loves us and has what? Freed us. Set us free from our sins. And how did He do it? By His blood. He shed His blood that we might be free. Forgiveness. Something that every one of us, moment by moment, are in need of. Forgiveness is found only in God's mercy. Only in the mercy of God. Peter, we talked, read there just a few moments ago, he says that we were redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, uh, but with the precious blood of Christ. Before he ever said that, uh, he tells us in the first chapter uh, and in verse 3, you turn there, read this to you. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. His great mercy. That's what brought Christ into this world, isn't it? His mercy. His mercy for sinners. Coming into this world so that God would not give us what we deserve. But what we deserve, God gave His Son, the Lord Jesus. Psalm 51, we read a few moments ago at the beginning of the hour. Did you listen closely uh, to the first few verses of that. How did David begin this song? Remember? Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me. What was David wanting? What was he desiring? David was wanting forgiveness of his sin, his iniquity, his transgression of all that is right in God's eyes. David longed to be cleansed of all his sin, to be pardoned of his sin. And so what did he cry out for? God, be merciful. God, have mercy. In Luke, the 18th chapter, Jesus tells a parable about two men in the temple. Pray. One of them is a Pharisee. And if you remember from your study of Scripture uh, much about the Pharisees, you will recall that they were a proud, even arrogant, self-filled, self-concerned, self-loving uh, group of individuals uh, who really saw themselves as above everybody else. Above everybody else. Because they felt that they unlike most, were obedient to all that God was commanding. 
And so the Pharisee, Jesus said, prayed this way, I thank God that I am not as other men. In other words, he's probably looking out over this, maybe even saw this other man, this publican out there praying, and he was so proud of himself, his obedience, his strict obedience to all the law of God, he thought he could look out at others and he could say in his prayer, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like these sinners. Oh, but this publican, the other man who was praying, his heart was so broken over his sin, his transgression, his iniquity, he was so broken that the scripture says he could not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat upon his own breast and he what? He cried out, Have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. If I remember correctly, most of our Bibles have it that he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe in in the Greek, the article is a definite article. It's not just in general, like a sinner. But this man prayed, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He saw himself as the one who had sinned against God. And he cried out for mercy. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Some of you may have read this week, as I've sort of developed a habit of doing, uh, along with my reading of the Scripture, I like to read some devotional things. And for several years now, I have been reading through Spurgeon's uh, devotional morning and evening both the morning and the evening uh, devotions. And this past week, I believe it was Thursday, uh, Spurgeon, uh, in his evening devotion recorded there in his book, uh, he actually had as his text for this one verse from the 51st Psalm that we read uh, a few minutes ago. And in verse 14, uh, David went on there to pray, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, Thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of Thy righteousness. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. What was on David's heart at this time? He was thinking about his sin with Bathsheba. And not just his sin with Bathsheba, but the sin that was in his heart because he had her husband killed. Had sent him back out into the front lines and so much as told uh, the others to draw back away from him so that he would be killed. He'd be alone, defenseless. Now David didn't actually kill Uriah, but he's the blame. He's the cause of Uriah's death. Well, Sir Spurgeon said, this 51st Psalm is the photograph of a contrite heart. Let us seek after the like brokenness of heart. For however excellent our words may be, if our heart is not conscious of the hell deservingness of sin, we cannot expect to find forgiveness. This text, Spurgeon says, has in it an earnest prayer. It's addressed to the God of salvation. And it's His prerogative to forgive. It is His very name and office to save those who seek His face. Better still, he says the text calls Him the God of my salvation. Yes, blessed be His name. While I am yet going to Him through Jesus' blood, I can rejoice in the God of my salvation. The psalmist then, he said, ends with a commendable vow. If God will deliver him, he will sing. Nay, more, he will sing aloud. Who can sing in any other style of such a mercy as this? But note the subject of the song. 
thy righteousness. Thy righteousness. Oh, we must sing of the finished work of a precious Savior and He who knows most of the forgiving love of our precious Savior will sing the loudest. (laughs) And I suspect that that's absolutely true. Oh, to know such a great love for a sinner like me fills my heart with praise and should fill my heart with a song and make me want to sing at the top of my voice His praises and His goodness for the glorious and wonderful salvation that is mine because of what He has done. Well, this morning, and I think we're just going to get started uh, in this, and we'll have to come back, God willing, another time because there's so much more that needs to be said. And uh, let me just go on to say this morning that there are two things that I want to point out from our text, and specifically my text this morning for this message on indispensable mercy is verse 38 and 39 of Acts chapter 13. Let me read it again. Where here the Apostle says, Let it be known unto you therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed or justified from everything from which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses, by our attempt to obey the law of Moses. Because we can't do it, can we? It's just an attempt. Always falls short. Unable, unable to obey everything perfectly, what the law says. So there's a need for something more than that. And the need is met by this man. By this man. Whom the Scripture tells us God made to be sin for us. Our sin. The sin of those whom God has loved from before the foundation of the world. My sin, your sin, if you're a believer, was put upon Christ. God took it off of us. Put it upon His Son. And He died to pay the price for it so that I wouldn't have to. A substitutionary sacrifice He was as He offered Himself to die in my place for my sin. Why did he do it? Because of his mercy. Because of his mercy. Well, there's two things that I want to point out from this text this morning. And the first thing is the glorious, glorious good news that we see in verses 38 and 39 of Acts 13. The glorious good news. The gospel. The glorious good news. And it's, it's in two parts. It's in two parts, if you notice here. It's, number one, the forgiveness of sin. That's a part of this glorious good news that we who are sinful can be forgiven. And be forgiven. And the second part is justification, or as we read it here in the ESV, freedom. Freedom from the guilt and the penalty that rests upon us because of our sin. Uh, and, and we are justified by, because of what Christ did in taking our sin upon Himself and dying in our place. And what is this word justified or justification. It's a legal term. It's really a legal term. And justified, to be justified in biblical terminology, in the context of what we see here, 
is to have God himself, the eternal God, the holy God, declare that I'm not guilty of sin. And I have no price to pay for sin because Christ paid the price for me. He redeemed me. He purchased me. He shed His blood, dying to pay the price for sin. And that is the price for sin, I might add. Death. In Romans 3.23, Paul said, For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Verse 23 of chapter 6 of Romans says what? The wages of sin is death. Death. That's what sin gets. Is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So the first thing that I want to point out from these verses is this glorious good news in two parts. Forgiveness and justification. Well, the second thing that I must point out is the warning that follows. The glorious good news of verse 38 and 39. The warning that follows. Verse 40 goes on to say, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, you despisers of what is right and what is good and what is true. Be astounded and perish. Die. Die. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if someone tells you. Oh, how many? How many have perished because they didn't believe what they were told? How many? God be merciful. God be merciful. Well, there are two things, as I said, that I want us to see from this text, this passage of Scripture. But before we actually look in much detail, at these two things. There's something else I think that we need to consider before we consider uh, the forgiveness and the justification uh, that is ours because of Christ and what He's done and the warning that He gives here. We need to see the, uh, the foundation upon which these things rest. And are built upon. Uh, it's kind of like uh, looking at the gospel and the good news and all that God declares uh, that He has done through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost like a, a looking at a building, the things that God has done in through Christ, and you see the building growing as as we see more and more of what Christ has done, but. Before that can happen, there has to be a foundation for the building to rest upon. And for us to know forgiveness and, and to be justified in the eyes of God, uh, there has got to be something that that rests upon. That that rests upon. Something solid. Something firm. Something that cannot be changed or taken away. So we, first of all, need to see what this foundation is that the good news rests on uh, and the method that God uh, uses to pardon sin and justify the sinner in His eyes. And it is very clearly in the text made known. What is it? What is the foundation upon which forgiveness and justification rests. 
through this man. Through this man. Isn't that what we read here? Let it be known unto you, therefore, brothers, that through this man is preached unto you forgiveness. And by him, through this man, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which he could not be freed by the law of Moses. Through this man. God will pardon and forgive sin. And aren't we thankful that God will pardon and forgive sin? But be aware, He only does it one way. Only one way. And that's through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him. Through His Son, the Lord Jesus. Spurgeon once again, said in one of his messages, and I remember reading this a long time ago, he said, the Lord Jesus has a monopoly on mercy. He has a monopoly on mercy. And we know what that means, don't we? You know, there are corporations in the world, there are businesses in the world, uh, like telephone business, for instance. There was a time when, uh, I believe it was Bell, uh, had a monopoly on the phone service. Uh, they got it all. They owned it all. They bought it all up. They purchased it all. They were in control of all of it. And you wanted phone service, you had to get it through them. Well, that's just a crude example of what we mean by monopoly. And the Lord Jesus, God's only begotten Son, has a monopoly on mercy. If you want to get it, it's got to be through Him. Through Him. Pardoning mercy is found only <coughs> in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are depending on mercy, even if it's the mercy of God, apart from Christ, God's Son, you're building your house on a very unstable foundation. Jesus told a parable about that, didn't he? A parable of uh, the builder, one man who built his house upon the sand. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 7. The man who built his house upon the sand, and the floods came, the rain came, the floods came, and it's like a flash flood washed through the the area there where he built his house upon the sand, and what happened to it? Destroyed it. Washed it away. Swept it away. Because it did not have a firm foundation. But the other man built his house upon what? The rock. The rock. A firm foundation. And when the flood came, and the surge hit, the wind blowing and the rain pouring and, and, and the torrent of water hit that building, hit that house. And what happened? It stood firm. It stood firm. And that's the only hope that we have. We like to sing a hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All we've got to build on a solid foundation. You see, God, God has a spring or a fountain, if you will, And out of that one spring or fountain flows the stream of God's mercy. And only that one fountain springs forth into a stream of mercy that is full of pardon 
and forgiveness and justification. Only that. Only that. Pardoning grace could only be found in this one stream. The atoning sacrifice of His only begotten Son. Another great hymn that we sing, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. But nowhere else, nowhere else can those stains be removed, cleansed, and can pardon and forgiveness be found. And if you will not come to this fountain, You'll perish in your sin. You'll perish. Die in your sin. Alienated from God. Separated from God. Without life. Without hope. Without God in this world. If you will not come to this fountain drawn from Emmanuel's veins. The blood of Christ. The indispensable mercy of God. It's found in His Son, the Lord Jesus, and Him alone. Well, I think we perhaps should stop there this morning. So much more to be said. So much more to be said about this foundation. Who it is. Who it is. The Lord Jesus. And once we get that established in our hearts and in our understanding that He and He alone has the mercy that can bring to us pardon, forgiveness, and a passport into the presence of a holy God. Once we know that, then we can think more about forgiveness and about justification. And then we're ready to hear the warning that's given here in the text as well. Well, I would ask you to be in prayer with me as we think about this. And God willing, as we'll come back to it and look much more closely at these things, it's found in these two verses of Acts chapter 13. And let us close with just reading it one more time. Listening to it one more time. Where the Apostle says, Let it be known. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through this man, the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, Everyone who believes, everyone who believes is set free, justified from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. No other way, is it? No other way. We'll look more closely at that when we come back and continue. Would you bow with me in prayer?